Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free versions of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes on current TV, movies we don't cover on the podcast, and other topics for $5 a month. We recently dropped an episode on Blue Eye Samurai and a mega episode on Fargo, Scott Pilgrim Takes Off, and Monarch Legacy of Monsters, three recent TV series derived from movies. And there's much more to come in 2024. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias here with Genevieve Kosky. The last time we heard from our usual co-hosts, Keith Phipps and Tasha Robinson, they were heading out on the turnpike without an easy pass, but I'm sure they got through the toll booth without incident. With Keith and Tasha out, however, we're excited to welcome back our special guest, Sedant Adlaka. Sedant is one of those freelance writers whose prolificness and skill make me envious and a little bit sleepy, and he's going to bring us some much-needed wrestling expertise when we get to the second part of our pairing. Uh, Sedant, welcome, and uh, since we're talking about the Iron Claw, do you have a favorite signature wrestling move? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And that is a great question to open with. Uh, the one I would choose off the top of my head doesn't make sense to talk about on a podcast because it takes a lot to explain to somebody who has never seen it. It's called The One-Winged Angel. So instead, I'm going to talk about a much simpler good name. one. It is a good name. I think it's uh, based on a Final Fantasy character. Uh, but I'm going to go back to what was my favorite move uh, as a kid. It's a simple one called the choke slam. It tells you everything you need to know up front. Uh, you grab a guy by the throat, you lift him up, you slam him down. I like it for several reasons. One, uh, I was introduced to it when it was performed by The Undertaker, who is both a mortician and a zombie. Two, I could perform it on my younger brother. I shouldn't have been doing that. And three, I recently found out it may have been invented by Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> I both want to ask a follow-up question and do not, because I kind of want that to just sit there. <laughs> you you got to learn your history, uh, Genevieve. This is, this is a classic part of the debates, the Lincoln-Douglas uh, debates, right? The uh, choke slam. 
Uh, wow, this is exciting. I almost kind of want to skip the Godfather altogether and get to the Iron Claw just to tap into more of this uh, wrestling information. But for now, we on the show uh, this week, we're going to talk about fathers and sons and unusually perilous family businesses. So I'm going to crawl over to the edge of the ring and let my tag team partner Genevieve take over the mic for a bit. Genevieve, can you tell us about this week's pairing? Sure. Sean Durkin's new biopic, The Iron Claw, grapples with the tragic legacy of the Von Erichs, a family of wrestling brothers that came onto the scene from Texas in the 1980s, but was dealt such an astonishing series of setbacks that their misfortunes were dubbed the Von Erich Curse. In Durkin's telling, the patriarch of the family, a former wrestling heel who performed under the name Fritz Von Erich, raises his sons to succeed him in the ring and bring back the heavyweight championship belt that had eluded him during his own career. The pressure he puts on his sons, Kevin, Carrie, and David, is immense, and that pressure, combined with the rigors and pitfalls of the sport, lead to horrific consequences. The relationship between Fritz and the sons who vie to succeed him in a deadly business naturally recalls the Corleone family in Francis Ford Coppola's 1972 crime saga, The Godfather. As Marlon Brando's Don Vito Corleone faces a specter of old age and tensions with New York's five families, there's a question of which of his sons will take over when he's gone. James Kahn's Sonny is willing but impulsive. John Cazell's Fredo is the eldest but too weak. That leaves El Pacino's Michael, a war hero who represents the family's desire for legitimacy in America, but also happens to have the right temperament for the job. This week, as the next picture shows wartime consigliere, I will lead us through a discussion of The Godfather and how Coppola transformed a pulpy collection of mob stories into one of the great American epics. The next week, we'll tag in for The Iron Claw and perhaps question the degree to which the Von Erich curse can be chalked up to bad luck. Please stay with us. My father's no different than any other powerful man who's responsible for other people. I had this part in the picture, it puts me right back up on top again. This Hollywood big shot's gonna give you what you want. He says there's no chance. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. You know my father, men are coming here to kill him. Now you wanna get mixed up in the family business? I thought you weren't going to become a man like your father. I never wanted this for you. Freedom, you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. Ever. During Robert Evans' legendary slash infamous run as a studio executive at Paramount Pictures, The Godfather was one of the successes he bragged about the most, along with Rosemary's Baby, Love Story, and Chinatown. But beyond securing the rights to Mario Puzo's novel, it seems like his most important contribution was his insistence that The Godfather be directed by an Italian-American. And even then, it's not like Francis Ford Coppola was at the top of his list, or on his list at all. To that point, Coppola had spent the 60s honing his craft on crude, low-budget projects like Dementia 13 and You're a Big Boy Now, before making the odd Fred Astaire musical Finian's Rainbow and the 1969 drama The Rain People, which is a lovely piece of work, but nothing to suggest a director prepared to take on a studio project of such enormous scale. Sergio Leone, Peter Bogdanovich, and at least six other big-name directors turned down The Godfather before Coppola was considered on the advice of Evans' assistant, Peter Bart. Incredibly, Coppola still said no before changing his mind. 
And it's that initial resistance to the material, he reportedly found Puzo's novel sleazy and sensationalist, that winds up creating an essential tension. Puzo's pulpy stories give The Godfather a powerful narrative engine, and that frees Coppola to give these stories a rich thematic and cultural context. You can see the tension pay off in the pacing, which is somehow both stately and the tightest three hours in cinema. Coppola delivers all the whackings the studio probably wanted, each one a small masterpiece of suspense and unforgettable staging, but they never shake him from the larger story he has in mind. And what's that story? It's the story of America. Right from the opening line, I believe in America, delivered by an Italian mortician who's speaking to Don Vito Corleone, the head of the Corleone crime family, in his office on the day of his daughter's wedding. Played by Marlon Brando, Don Vito listens as the mortician tells the story of his good daughter's beating at the hands of vicious assailants and asks for a form of justice that courts cannot give him. The speech sets up the entire movie, the entire trilogy, really. The mortician's daughter, presumably a second-generation immigrant just like Vito's kids, is framed as a virtuous young woman defiled by dishonorable men, and the symbolism is not lost on Vito. There's no justice or respect extended to Italians who play by the rules, and no reward for the children of immigrants who might expect some sliver of the American dream. This is a country that's not always great at keeping its promises. Vito should know. His boys, Sonny, played by James Caan, and Fredo, played by John Gazal, have no future outside of the illicit family business, and circumstances will pull Al Pacino's Michael, a war hero of formidable intelligence and charisma, into the morass. At one point, Vito gives a speech where he expresses his regret to Michael. I never wanted this for you, he tells him. And it gives this theme a heavy, dramatic punch. Vito is a condemned man and he knows it, despite his stewing over the hypocrisies of politicians and police captains whose own corruption and duplicity is shrouded in the heavy veil of public virtue. He surely admires Michael's strength, the real cold-blooded kind, as opposed to Sonny's fiery temperament. But if he ever dreamed of a better life for his children, that dream dies along with him. Evans was correct in believing an Italian-American could bring a lot to the table, at least this particular Italian-American who enriches the production with cultural rituals and signifiers that make The Godfather so much more than a pulpy crime thriller, though it's certainly outstanding on that front too. But look past the gangsterism and you're watching a family of immigrants trying to find success in a country that keeps them on the margins. There's a lot of talk here in the sequels about the Corleone family going quote-unquote legitimate. This is an assurance that Michael gives his wife Kay, played by Diane Keaton, to justify his taking over as head of the family. But in the form of a crime film, Coppola turned The Godfather into a story about the quest for legitimacy for Italian-Americans writ large. Michael was supposed to be the second-generation son who was going to lead future generations of the Corleones to a better life, but he will only compound a multi-generational tragedy. We'll talk about it after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You goddamn guineas really make me laugh. I do you a favor and take Freddie in when you're having a bad time, and then you try to push me out. Wait a minute. You took Freddie in because the Corleone family bankrolled your casino because the Molinari family on the coast guaranteed his safety. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business, Mike. First of all, you're all done. The Corleone family don't even have that kind of muscle anymore. The Godfather is sick, right? You're getting chased out of New York by Bazzini and the other families. What do you think is going on here? You think you can come to my hotel and take over? I talked to Barzini. I can make a deal with him and still keep my hotel. Is that why you slap my brother around in public? Okay, so The Godfather is about as famous and as picked over a classic as we've tackled on the show. And it's also one of those movies that reveals new things every time you see it. So what, uh, Sedant, stood out for you this time around? Well, I can't help but talk about it in the context of the other movie we're discussing. I know we're going to get into it in detail later, but uh, just looking at it through the lens of what the Iron Claw does for, you know, the sport of wrestling or the art of wrestling, I think The Godfather does a similar thing for, you know, the mob and the mafia. And I think that's it creates a sort of modern American mythology, you know, as much as both films are based in you know, reality, you know, one is a biopic, but the other is based on, you know, real power structures and whatnot. I think something they both do and something The Godfather especially does is it creates a sort of modern cinematic folklore around, yeah, just the image of America and I guess America's image of itself in the middle of the 20th century, because there's no talking about, you know, modern American capitalism without talking about the mob and the mafia in the first half of the century, just as there's no talking about modern entertainment without talking about pro wrestling. And I think given a lot of what it does aesthetically as well, the sort of almost dreamlike warmth brought to the cinematography, it feels, it can feel like a dream at times. It can feel like something ethereal, something that exists both on a different plane, but also like all around us. When you're dealing with a film like The Godfather, like there's so many iconic scenes, so many iconic image. I mean, it is an iconic film, like in the literal sense of the word, in, in so many ways. You know, performance on a scene by scene basis, on a line reading basis. But the scene that really stuck out to me on this viewing is one that is very pivotal, and I don't think anyone would argue otherwise. But it feel like it doesn't get referenced and talked about, just like doesn't get quoted or uh, visually referenced as often. And that's the hospital scene when Michael, you know, discovers his dad alone in the hospital and you know saves him. It's like his first act toward becoming the godfather himself. So it's his first moment of action. And, you know, he tells his father, I'm with you now. It's an incredibly important scene, but it's so eerie, <laughs> you know, just the, it's a the long walk through those empty halls. And even just before he even goes into the hospital, this darkness with these Christmas lights, 
And it, it reminded me like the, of the weirdness of the fact that The Godfather is kind of a holiday movie for a lot. <laughs> like it played on a TV during the, uh, the holidays during Christmas. It was like Christmas. I think it still is kind of standard Christmas TV programming. Although in the streaming era, I don't know if, if that's still the case. But like when I was growing up, The Godfather was on TV like every Christmas. And like, you know, if you think about that, it's like that's kind of a weird programming choice, but then maybe it's not because it is kind of at heart a story about family, <laughs> you know, and that's that's what the holidays are about. So like, you know, setting aside all the violence, I, I get it. And also, it's hard to think of The Godfather, the first one, in a vacuum outside of the, the rest of the saga, in particular Godfather Part 2, which was discussed on this podcast uh, a while back. But like on its own, the first Godfather is like kind of a warm movie. Like you get like it like sets the stage for, you know, Michael's downfall or you, you know, it, it like begins the curse, the Corleone family curse. But like Don Vito is almost a upstanding character in the context of this movie, you know, and there is, you know, such a familial warmth to a lot of this film, particularly the wedding scene that opens the film and is so much longer. I always forget how long it is. I'm like, oh, this has been going on for like 35 minutes. It's a very important sequence, but I'm rambling a little because there's so much to talk on with this film and like picking one thing, it just feels like foolish. But uh, Scott, I'm going to throw it to you. And what stood out to you this time? <laughs> well, to go, to go back to what you're saying about the hospital scene, I mean, it, now that you mentioned it, it is visually anything, even totally a lot different than anything else in the, in the movie in the sense that it is not this kind of warm interior space. It is a space that's, that's full of kind of impending danger and chaos it's a it's a real suspense sequence you know mm -hmm. of, of the kind that you don't necessarily get in this movie because you know even even when you when you get scenes of violence they're all calculated you know it's not really mm -hmm. it, it, they're all th thought through so thoroughly in here it's just it, it's kind of this the hit, michael kind of reacting on the spot so it does have a kind of a different feel from the other scenes but as far as like what it revealed to me this time around i mean there's so I'm constantly fascinated by Michael Corleone as a character throughout the whole trilogy, but just about who is he when the movie starts and who is he when it ends and what are his ambitions then and, and are they the same at the, at the end? Like, who is this person? I mean, and, and is there a point where he just kind of locks into the idea that he has to do this? Like, this is something that nobody else is capable of taking over for his father maybe it's at the hospital maybe he has to kind of step in and and say i've got this i've got you i'm gonna keep you safe and then it becomes about training that his mind which is so so shrewd and cold really onto the task of keeping the corleone family running in a way that his brothers cannot but where does that sort of leave him and where is his soul he's such an interesting character you know, and, and I mean, there's just so much else about the movie. That opening that I that mentioned, that this is America's speech, and how that just sets the table for the whole movie and the whole trilogy. I love the tension, again, as I mentioned in the keynote, between the kind of juicy pulpy Mario Puzo elements of it, where you're, you know, you've got the, where with the horse head and the whole thing, and how that intermingles 
with what Coppola wants to bring to the table, particularly right from the beginning, right, right from the wedding where you have mob business happening at the same time that you have this sequence at the wedding that is just so thoroughly invested in terms of the music and, you know, the, the dancing and the wardrobe, like so thoroughly immersive in this culture i mean it's just it's so rich <laughs> it's so good so i don't know i can't really sing a lot i can't answer my own question properly because there's too much that stood out for me uh this, this time around but um i think there's there's a lot to this movie for sure and i guess maybe that kind of leads into my next question which is that the godfather is a gangster movie there there have been plenty there were plenty of gangster films before it and after it and i was kind of curious how you all felt it sort of conform to the our expectations of what a gangster movie is supposed to be like and then what it kind of did to defy those expectations i think given its you know place in popular culture i think it's probably the movie that actually sets the expectations for all other gangster movies because like for me personally like i you know i didn't see the godfather until i was about maybe 14 or 15 but by that point i was so inundated with a lot of the images a lot of the dialogue from it that it was already the de facto gangster movie. It mm-hmm. was sort of a a gateway into understanding what a mob movie is. And of course, you know, you can go back now and you can look at, you know, movies from the 30s and 40s with, you know, which were, I guess you could argue, with part of the emergence of the gangster movie as a genre in Hollywood. But, uh, and, and those, you know, function very differently. They're much more didactic especially when the haze code comes mm-hmm. around but mm-hmm. i think the godfather has been around so long that it stands on such a pedestal that it is probably the benchmark for what gangster movies are considered today that they are about you know these ethical dilemmas and these families and then you know like like any teenager getting into cinema for the first time the next thing you watch is Goodfellas, if not The Godfather Part Two, And then you start to compare that to The Godfather. How does it work in the context of, you know, family specifically and skirting around not just the law, but, you know, the, the rules you have within the family and those kind of betrayals as well. So I think it sort of redefined the language and expectations of the gangster movie itself. I think that's true. I mean, I, you know, if you do think about like, if you do go back and you look at a film like uh, the Hawks, Scarface, I mean, there were they had to be super very clear about the morality of the morality has a piece of it had to be hammered in. You couldn't really you couldn't really handle that in any kind of an ambiguous way. But it also kind of served to excite the audience in a very illicit way, and you know, which is kind of the thrill of, of, of the gangster movie. And I, I don't think that's at all absent from The Godfather. The Godfather has plenty of moments that are, you know, exciting in the way that gangster movies have been exciting forever. But I think that Coppola's insistence on making The Godfather about something larger, it's just, it, it's, his focus is so strong at all times on that theme i think he just i think it, it, it just the idea of making a straightforward gangster film was so seems so distasteful to him i guess that he just he's constantly seems to be looking for ways to enrich the drama whether he's doing that with through the characters whether he's doing that with just very small bits of cultural detail like all of that stuff you know gives it this it does it does something more and of course it made it very difficult for anything to follow up anywhere near as effectively i mean the nice thing the fun thing about goodfellas is that it, it doesn't try it has its own energy and it has its own agenda and it's about 
you know, it's not about guys who run things. It's about guys who, who are at a lower level and that sort of those sorts of conflicts and those venality. So that was kind of wise on Scorsese's part, not to, not to really, not to really even try to venture into what Coppola was doing. Another kind of interesting thing that it does, and I'm cribbing here from a piece that uh, Roger Ebert wrote on the film, but it, you know, presents the mafia as as a closed system where all sort of the victims of it are within. Like there are no civilian victims in, in in the Godfather. You know, the only like civilians that we encounter are the ones like uh, the Undertaker at the beginning, who is getting justice. You know, and all of the the murder. <laughs> happens within the context of this system's sense of justice. So I think it kind of allows us as viewers to disassociate a little from the the crime element of what the mafia is, you know, and the the victimization of it. And it becomes its own little kind of insular world where these bigger themes and ideas about family and the American dream can play out within that closed system without getting complicated by anything outside of it. So this kind of gets to the heart of what we're, we'll end up being discussing with both films. But let's let's kind of talk about it here with The Godfather, because we'll be talking a lot in the next episode about the relationship between brothers and, and their fathers. How would you characterize a sibling dynamic here? And how would you, what, what do you make of, I guess, of Don Vito's feelings for his children and, and vice versa? I guess a big question, but break it down how you like. I think starting with Don Vito, what you immediately get a sense of anytime you see him talk to or about any of his sons is the fact that he just he seems to know them inside out. And that's of course a testament to, you know, Marlon Brando as a performer, but even if even if he's offhandedly mentioning Sonny the Hothead or Michael the Hero or Fredo the loser. Those are not his words, of course. But <laughs> but there's something about the tone he takes or the way he glances when he talks about them that you, you can you can tell a lot about them through what he says and through what he doesn't say. And I think similarly, each of those performances by the three actors playing them, and of course the writing that they bring to life, is all so detailed that you it 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 just helps propel the story forward as a tale about three brothers who are so incredibly different that they have different relationships to the family and by that i mean you know the family as a crime organization because you have michael who's on the outside of it you have sunny who wants to run things but keeps seems to mess things up because of how impulsive he is and fredo who just kind of sucks at it and I think by having these three brothers who are so different, but at the same time, they interact like brothers. They interact like they know each other intimately, like they've been around each other all their lives, which they have. It helps pull you into this world as an ongoing story rather than one that has started to be told as you watch the movie, if that makes sense. Because these are lives that have been lived before the movie starts, even though, of course, you know, the actors playing these characters have started playing them on set. But I think it, it just speaks to the way, the detail with which it was written and directed and acted, that you get everything you need to know about their dynamics as brothers and as, you know, parents and children just from, you know, minor interactions, like the way that Sonny kind of offhandedly, you know, dismisses or bullies Michael. But it's not a whole scene. It's just like a fleeting interaction. 
but you can you can break down practically any exchange between any two of them and you learn everything you need to know yeah what struck me on this viewing uh, watching it in tandem with the iron claw is how little sort of overt competition there seems to be between the brothers both between themselves and put on them by don vito like they begin the film kind of set in their expected roles and they all seem to a degree comfortable with that i mean Fredo's Fredo and, you know, he's not particularly comfortable with anything, but like there isn't like an overt jockeying for favor the way there is in, say, succession, you know, which is sort of another kind of outgrowth of this story in a way. And sort of like the dramatic arc of the film as it pertains to Michael is kind of transitioning from one of one role to another and sort of the, the drama of that, because it's not what any of them kind of expected and there's some some growing pains in, in that transition i guess but there's never i don't anyway get the sense that you know there is like i said a sense of competition that anyone other than sunny is going to like take over the family business until that does not become viable for uh, various reasons. Um, <laughs> chief among them being that he died. Um, mm-hmm. But, but obviously, like like you said at the beginning, Scott, like uh, Michael is suited to it in a way that that Sonny is not, and that only becomes apparent once he is kind of forced out of that expected role. But what's to be what's so fascinating though about Michael is that Don Vito knows damn well that Michael is the best suited to do yeah. that work and right. he doesn't want him to but do it. But he's not pressuring him to. Yeah, right. I mean, it's more than just not pressuring. I think it's just like, it makes him sick that he has to, that this has to happen. Like, that Michael, this he had all of this hope invested into who is clearly kind of going places or on a path to becoming his own man and building a d- different type of life for himself, moving the Corleone family into a legitimacy not in the way that michael tries to this in the in the other movies but like you know by just living a life separate from the family business altogether he wants that and i think that's that links up so profoundly with the the just the dreams that first generation immigrants have for their children is is to find is you know that 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 the sacrifices and or, or in the sins in this case that had to be committed were done so in a way to elevate their children and grandchildren give give them a foothold in the country and and so i think when you know when it becomes obvious that uh, michael has to take over there is certainly a tragic component to it that uh I think that Brando plays quite well and subtly, you know, Michael's harder to read, always, always harder to read in terms of, you know, I I don't, it it almost feels like it's just, it's just a gear that clicks in his head, Uh, you know, like, this is what I have to do. This is my family. This is my duty to do this and I can do it rather than, you know, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe you have a different feeling about that. Maybe this is some hidden ambition. And he's ends up liking it or wanting it in a, in a way that wasn't apparent to us at the beginning, but that part of it is fascinating. And I, and I, I do lo- really like what what Sedan had to say about how uh, much Coppola is able to get from uh, get out of these sibling relationships without needing a lot of time to do it. I mean, you know, this is a sprawling film, but but uh, but you can in, in certain just in gestures in a line and the way that in body language and the way that, you know, Sonny will like to kind of uh, grab the, the smaller Michael and, you know, uh, in a way that kind of suggests a certain amount of dominance 
like you, it's all it's all kind of there and certainly when you get a scene like michael coming into las vegas to what he's treated uh, to from from fredo yeah, i mean that really uh clarifies that relationship quite a lot anyway i'm rambling but it, it's interesting the economy of this movie despite the length of it and like it never feels rushed despite how much it, it gets through like this is kind of getting away from your uh question scott but like maybe kind of going back to your first question about what stood out to us this time is just noticing how long some of the takes are and how deliberately scenes are set up like like again the hospital scene like that's like a full minute of michael just like walking through this maze of corridors you know that with, with without a, a cut and the of course the the horse head uh, the horse head in the bed scene has this incredibly like quiet tense lead up to the big reveal you know and then it gives it so much more power than you know quick cuts would have it has all these kind of like cross dissolves and again creating that sort yeah. of again you like remember dream our video with, uh, genevieve oh i do the dissolve one dissolves video that we yeah. did it had it, yeah featured that very sequence of just like yeah dissolving your way up to the studio heads uh, bedroom amazing stuff yeah and and i mean it's so much more effective than like like a horror movie style quick cut to the the head in the bed would have been you, you know and we stay we like stay with him for a, a few of those screams before cutting away like it's not it's not in a hurry but it moves uh like, like you said you know it's a it's a very propulsive movie but it's not in a rush to get there should we say something about Tom Hagen here? <laughs> I have been waiting to get to Tom Hagen because he's a character who I always kind of forget about. I think by design, you know, he's not part of the main plane of trifecta, but he's like on the sidelines, but definitely not. And that performance by Duvall, I think, is, uh, you know, again, sort of designed to make you kind of forget about him until you need to remember him. Yeah. I mean, it changes his, the, I mean, the fact that he can't, he can't take that position because he's not truly by blood a part of the the, the family it, mm -hmm. that alters everything and also just the the interesting business about him not necessarily having the stomach for what michael needs to do that's an interesting component too what what, what are your thoughts on that uh, Sadat? i think in addition to what you've both said he he grounds the other brothers in an interesting way because you know where you have the hothead the the outsider the Loser, I'm so sorry, Fredo. I do love you. Um, <laughs> he he's the logical one. He's the man with the plan, and if given the opportunity, he would be able to probably execute those plans better than anyone. But you know, again, the structures in place prevent him from rising through the ranks. And um, what's more American than that? He's also like sort of the symbol of the family's supposed efforts to, you know, go legit, which, you know, Michael talks about at the beginning, you know, the moment when he sends Tom Hagen away because he's not a wartime consigliere is sort of a, a refutation of that desire to go legitimate, you know. So, you know, he's a lawyer. He's he, to go back to that hospital scene. He's he's the one who who shows up and uh, you know with the men carrying legal firearms and uh, to to protect. You know, like he's he's there to fix the situation in an above board way or as above board as the situation can can be. Obviously, he does take extra legal actions. Uh, as, as needed mm. but as you know as a lawyer he is sort of the go-between with the politicians that the family uh 
uh, works with, like he's, like I said, just a symbol of the degree to which this organization can be legit and how sort of the failure of it to do so. Yeah, he is also a, a K Wrangler uh, as well, uh, which comes <laughs> through. And uh, it's like, ah, oh, don't, don't pay attention to that car. It's a little bit of an accident. No worries. No worries. That car in the background. Yeah. But I mean, like, he is the, the, the thing about him not being a wartime consigliere is kind of interesting because he is responsible for getting getting the job for uh in hollywood taking care of uh taking care of the horse situation uh, um twisting the arm there uh he, he do, and he you know he goes and he tries it one way and it ends up going another way and then and then you know one of my favorite moments of the movie is that moment that he has with Abe Vigoda. Is it Tessio is the character mm-hmm. who sort of turns on the family for pretty pragmatic reasons and gets caught and Tessio is just kind of like any way I can get out of this and sort of like nope <laughs> Uh, it's kind of like this is, this is what happens and and the way that tom man manages those scenes is so similar to michael i mean i guess he's maybe doing michael's business to a certain extent or don vito's business but it is kind of like i'm not gonna raise my voice i'm gonna i'm gonna be i'm gonna think my way through the situation but maybe he's i i think ultimately maybe he can't quite go to quite so dark a place as michael needs to go at the very end of the movie when when uh when he takes care of the other heads of the families etc but um it's an interesting character and another character kind of you know evolves and has an interesting has an interesting place throughout the trilogy any word again another character i'm forgetting until i just mentioned her uh, any any word on k any anything anything to uh talk about uh with that character i mean she gets the last shot of the film i, I mean it's a it's a door closing on her face but you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's important yeah and if anything from the beginning of the movie she does you know represent the outsider's point of view and by the end of it mm-hmm. you know she's still kept on the outside yeah. I mean, if nothing else, like from a narrative function in that uh, opening wedding sequence, like she's incredibly useful just for uh, ex- explaining how all of this works, you know, which uh, the, the film does very efficiently and uh, in, in part because of her, not solely, uh, but definitely she helps. But um, yeah, I mean... I definitely want to talk about the uh, use of women in both of these films in the, in the second part, because uh, both this and the Iron Claw sideline them in that's just like, I, I'm not necessarily counting that as a flaw because it's just like kind of how these movies are and sort of the worlds of these movies are in particular, mm-hmm. the, the, the Godfather, like there's no place for women in the business they are by design on on the outside but they're also like in a way the heart of the family what all this is for you know like this is all in theory designed to uplift and support the the family um like there's that scene uh before uh at clemenza's house this like lovely little scene of domesticity where his wife is telling him like don't forget to bring the cannoli home and clemenza warns him not to run over the kids you know and it's just kind of like he's he's on his way to work to provide for his family and you know and he, he doesn't forget that cannoli even after, after the deed is done so there is kind of this underlying sense of like this is all being done to support these families. And the women are kind of uh, emblematic of that, even if they don't have a direct effect on the action of the movie. We've talked quite a bit about Michael Corleone in general, but he is, he, you know, becomes the central player in this movie and then in the movies going forward. And it's just, it's fascinating to think about 
who he is and what he wants. And did this movie, you know, watching this first movie, did, did, did you get an idea? Do you have like a take on Michael Corleone? I do. And something that comes to mind now living in a post-Irishman world, uh, a movie in which mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese has all these scenes of Robert De Niro, a young D.H. Robert De Niro at war, uh, making prisoners dig their own graves. I have to wonder, you know, if he is in some way, because that, that is a movie that, you know, visually quotes The Godfather in a lot of ways. And I have to wonder if on some level, maybe he's wondering, what did Michael Corleone do when he was on the front lines and Mm. is it much of a stretch for him despite being seen as you know the good son the straightforward son who's going to take the family legit is it much of a stretch for him to go down the path that he does you know becoming a killer and such because you know at one point I, i can't remember which character it was somebody mentions that there is this desire for michael to become a senator I don't think it's something Michael ever expresses. It's the expectations that other people have of him as the more legit of the brothers. And yeah, just recently, I've just been thinking about, you know, who he was before this movie began and how that plays into him, like, you know, pulling the trigger and killing the police chief and just his desire to do that in the first place. You know, because the the film never touches on the explicit connection between him being a soldier and him eventually being essentially a soldier for the family, uh, even though that is seen as him being a hero, even though what what he actually may have done is completely glossed over as, you know, it, it's not something you would expect the family to talk about. But I, I just have been wondering. I actually had a very, very similar train of thought watching it and, you know, seeing Michael, you know, in his uniform at the wedding and, you know, being called a hero and sort of the specter of, of war. But then realizing like, we never really see him do anything else after returning home. Like he, he transitions almost immediately into this new role in in his family, like within a a matter of months, you know, we don't get a sense that he is pursuing a different path. Once he, uh, once he returns, it's like, I don't feel like it's that big of a stretch to suggest that his path toward becoming the Godfather may have started in the war, you know, and, giving him this comfort with killing and violence and kind of like you say the through line to offering to to do the hit that's definitely a connection i was uh, mulling over to on this viewing although i didn't make the irishman uh connection so i love job that there. I, I i love the irish <laughs> I, like i never thought about that but it makes so much sense of just like uh, of you know because sometimes you you see in mentions of Michael in this movie as a war hero, the war hero is kind of in scare quotes. Um, and, mm-hmm. and it's just, and it, 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 maybe there's, a, there's this idea that you do make a senator potentially if you send, if he comes back in his crisp, crisp uniform with this reputation, maybe that, that is your intention, but you, you have potentially just sharpened his instincts as a killer. And, uh, uh, you know, in the way that he pulls off that quite intimate, shooting you know on top of i mean he certainly does a lot of planning on other on other fronts but that that is an incredibly audacious and skillful job that he is able to do and um you know how how does he do that and what does that say about the type of person that he is interesting character you know and and again when you get into the sequels you know just the the level of kind of corruption that he takes on uh, you know the desire for legitimacy that is just perverted in a lot of ways i mean there's a you know i mean one thing about the third movie for all its flaws just like he's so 
wealthy and so connected and it's beginning right in the in the vatican it just kind of like that gross kind of connection between gangsterism and, and just the highest levels of power i find that such a strong theme despite the movie being a little bit flawed but uh we're not here to talk about godfather part three <laughs> uh, uh, so, can i make so, it can i make a confession that i still haven't seen part three what? i've only i've, I've a, always stopped it too it out there you are not the only yeah. one <gasps> oh, not the only one on this call yeah, i've i've seen <laughs> Maybe the first hour or so of the third one a very long time ago, and I decided not to watch the rest of it. I have been meaning to watch the new cut of it, though, but I just haven't been able to. Yeah. If you say, if you just kind of like calibrate your expectations that, okay, this is a step down from, <laughs> from the first two, there's no question about it. It is not an insignificant movie at all. And that's, that's the thing I always, that I learned about Coppola in general, it's just like, you know, I watched every single film of his for Vulture for that rank list, and it was like only Jack is the only film of his that's not that you can't make an <laughs> argument for. Uh, I, or I can't make an argument for. Like he's just he just can't help himself. He's just too interesting a person. So let's kind of get to this big question, which is that do you have a favorite set piece? This is a movie with tons of them, scenes, set pieces, kind of classic moments. Is there a section of this film or even a shot that you savor the most? So at the risk of sounding blasphemous, it, even more so, you know, just having said I haven't seen the third film, a lot of my understanding of this film is colored by how I came to it. And, um, you know, obviously I knew about the movie, you know, growing up, but I didn't watch it until after I played the Godfather video game on PlayStation 3, <laughs> which released in 2006. <laughs> And uh -huh. so it's images from that game that I kind of associate with the movie. And they kind of go hand in hand for me because you, you play a low-level enforcer in the game and you work your way up. And the way it works is you are kind of unraveling scenes from the movie. Like what is a small little instance in the movie you are playing through to its completion like we just discussed how you have the you know the series of fades closer and closer to the producer's house and the horse head lands up in his bed right so in the game mm -hmm. you are moving closer and closer to his house cutting his horse's head off and putting it in the bed um <laughs> You know, towards towards wow. the end, towards the end, you have this collapse montage of all these executions, these assassinations while Michael is at the church uh, for the baptism. And, you know, they're edited to make it look like they happen all at once because maybe they do. But in the world of The Godfather, the video game, they don't happen all at once. You are on a 20 minute clock and you have to go execute all the other heads of the families uh, while the baptism is taking place. So I think it's it, it ends up being the scenes like that, that I see how they're presented in video game form, and then I see how they're executed cinematically that end up kind of lodging themselves in my brain as, okay, these are these are two things. Now, I'm not going to call The Godfather video game the greatest video game ever made, but they do represent what both mediums do really well. You know, one as a trip through space and time, and one, you know, that collapses time. And I think there's there's no better film from a montage standpoint, I think, than The Godfather. And I know we talk about you know, mm. things like Battleship Potemkin, but for me, it's it's the way The Godfather, through the two scenes I mentioned, is able to create a sense of mood through its editing by taking out what would ordinarily be, you know, much more a much more detailed description, uh, like you do find in the book as well, and and just 
kind of creating a set piece out of the bare essence of these these huge events, these executions of people and horses. That is so fascinating, the <laughs> the video game to film comparison, especially regarding the, the baptism scene, which, I mean, we obviously we can't end this discussion without talking about the baptism scene. And I, I did not think that's how we would do it, but I love that it was. <laughs> that it was because you, it is... You, uh, you don't have to do any part of the baptism. There's no... That, that's not part of the game at all. No, the, no unfortunately. No, 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 the, the, uh, no, no points for oh, dunking the baby. <laughs> it's too but, much water. Um, I mean, <laughs> to your question, Scott, I mean, obviously the the baptism uh, montage is always uh, sticks out. It's kind of the key part of this film. But it also is interesting to me as a, as a bookend to the wedding sequence, which I've already talked a lot about. Um, and I, I do love on its own for how it establishes everything so efficiently. But the contrast between the the baptism scene and the wedding scene, sort of, you know, these two, the wedding isn't exactly a, a rite, like we don't see the ceremony itself, but, you know, it is sort of two, you know, re- religious gatherings. And uh, more uh, specifically, it's sort of two presentations of the godfather, of a godfather's duty, you know, and the different ways in which Vito and Maiko kind of execute, if you'll if you'll pardon the term, their their duties as as Godfather. Well, I wish I had. I wish I had. I, I'm not, I'm so so stuck on uh, Sadat's exper- ex, you know way into the Godfather that I just I, I think I may have played that game back in the day, but I was never skillful enough at video games to get as far as potentially as I needed to to experience uh, the the baptism scene as as you did. Oh, I took over all the burrows. <laughs> <laughs> I always think the baptism scene when I'm in revolving doors because uh, that one of the one of the kills is just sticking that trapping one of those guys in a revolving door and shooting him. To me, this the set piece I really love is the uh, is Michael assassinating the mob boss and the policeman for a couple of different reasons. I mean, one is I, I really like the lead up to it where where Michael's in the car. I mean, you have the tension of them pulling is try, trying to trying to lose a tail by by driving towards New Jersey and then turning back toward the place that they always knew that they were going to go but what was interesting to me is just how much how much the kind of discussion that takes place about the tensions between them just you know Michael's face during that when he knows is so he's having to think about what he needs to do but he's also quite engaged and furious at what they're talking to him about i mean he you know he is still quite raw about what has happened to his father and so so the tension in that it plays out on two different levels i think just getting to the restaurant and then when he does the actual execution you know he follows a plan that i think it's clemenza who who outlines for him but he doesn't do it exactly the same way like there's a human element to the way he does it he's supposed to shoot them both in the head twice and drop the gun and leave and it doesn't quite work out that way i mean he gets he gets the job done he does drop the gun but everything is is something is just a little bit off rhythm in a way that makes it feel more human and real because we're so used to especially now action films where everything is choreographed like a ballet or something where it's just where everything is uh, you know uh, timed so so perfectly and there's something slightly imperfect about the way he carries out the execution that i really like so that that's kind of a sequence that 
you know, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I mean, I'm just kind of choosing one of many. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm glad you, you brought it up because it's actually when we were uh, talking about uh, sort of Michael's past as, as a war hero and, you know, how that might have informed his ability to, to kill. I did want to also touch on the fact that uh, in that scene, he does not seem particularly <laughs> comfortable with it. You know, like uh, he's, he's nervous and he doesn't drop the, the gun in, uh, right away. And, you know, like, but I think it does kind of speak to the fact that as Godfather, and this also kind of goes back to the conversation about Tom Hagen, like, he's not, you know, auditioning for a capo role here. <laughs> you know, after this, I don't think he, like, actually performs another murder himself, right? He only directs others to do that. And that's sort of like the the position he is, is, is moving toward. So that moment is sort of like an anomaly in that progression. It's a way for him to like, I guess, prove himself or it's a crossing the Rubicon mo- moment, whatever you want to say, but it's not necessarily like the first of many. Yeah. It's also revenge. I mean, it's personal for him. He, sure. he was, you that know, that, 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 that cop punched him in the face and, you know, and is uh, corrupt and it's supposed to be you know this uh you know a uh, uh, public uh, official of some public trust and uh royals him and and the certainly the attempt on his father's life all you know multiple attempts on his father's life uh um he's angry and takes it personally um it's not just business it's personal but there there's going to be so much more to cover about the godfather uh on our next episode when we bring in the iron claw so we'll just leave it at that and uh we'll uh be right back with feedback now it's time for feedback but before we get to it we want to shout out film spotting the next picture shows mothership podcast hosted by adam kepinar and josh larson as we record this adam and josh were joined by michael phillips and mariah gates for their best films of 2023 podcast it's very large it's very long it's two <laughs> it's three hours and 26 minutes which is approximately as long as martin scorsese's killers of the flower moon and like killers of the flower moon it's definitely worth your time so check that out it might even have a, a voicemail from some of your f- favorite podcasters who knows um (laughs) speaking of movie of the year discussions we got this piece of feedback from kyle in chicago when we asked our listeners last week to name the movie they wish everybody had seen this year genevieve want to read it sure Kyle writes, I wanted to respond to Tasha's question she posed at the top 10 of 2023 episode with the obvious answer for me, The Five Devils. Leah Macias' film tells a beautiful story about the forbidden love that perfectly balances magic and realism as we see a child travel through time to discover a passionate but suppressed romance between her mother and father's sister. It offers fantastic performances from all involved, but especially Adele Exarchopoulos and child actor Sally Dramay. I love the way the film looks, the way the women look at each other, and its central karaoke scene that's been my favorite scene of the year since I saw the film in April. I'm especially disappointed and surprised the film hasn't received more attention, given Exarchopoulos' performance in Passages. But these things never make sense. Thanks for another great year of conversations. Looking forward to more in 2024. Us too, Kyle. Thank you. Yes, for sure. I think none of us have seen The Five Devils on this podcast, though Keith saw it and, and liked it. And I know plenty of others who are on board. It's so sounds so completely up my alley. I don't know how I have not caught up with it, but uh, this is a good prompting from Kyle to do so. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, if you say have another 
underseen gem that you want to share uh, with the rest of our listeners, uh, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll bring in Sean Durkin's The Iron Claw, which is about another set of brothers entering a family business that's somehow just as deadly as gangsterism. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and at blue sky at The Next Picture Show if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, you're free to refuse all the offers you like. Thank you.